recorded live. Hello, everyone. This is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. It is Saturday, December 17th, 2011. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. I'm not, um, I'm usually more prepared than I am today to do a program. I, I, I um, threw together some books and some notes. I, I didn't realize I, I had planned tonight to present my classical records and Dorian and Danon Greeks, what, which helps to prove that the Dorian Greeks and the Danon Greeks were, in fact, Israelites. And, and I didn't realize how brief this, how concise and, and brief this paper was when, when I wrote it. it. It's only about four pages, but that's okay. I will make my point, I, I believe. That the, um, I have some other material that I threw together. I was at a family gathering all day today and, and I ended up spending a little longer than I had planned because I was giving several family members an elucidation of scripture and the identity of the Jews. Some of them listened and, and are interested, and, and, of course, some of them scoffed and um, said they'd pray for me. Well, well, I found that to be amusing, and I, I need all the prayer I could get, believe me, but not for the reason of that, that they want to pray for me, that's for sure. So, so um, I, I, they're good people, but they're just lost Judeo-Christians. And don't understand that Christ told the Jews that they didn't believe him because they weren't his sheep. And, and that's the bottom line. And if they believed their Bibles instead of their Judaized pastors, maybe they wouldn't argue with me to the extent that they do. But that's okay. Last week I presented um, a paper I wrote several years ago, Classical Records and Trojan Roman Judah. I don't remember if I had written that one before this current paper that I'm going to present tonight or not, but, but um, they were among the first historical essays I had written for, um, for, for Clifton Emmerheiser's teaching ministry when I was in prison. The, the um, writing for that, that, that venue, and, and some of my, I, I could get into my papers, my historical essays again and rewrite them, and essays of this nature, you could never stop writing. I mean, there's just so much material in the classical world to choose from and to quote and to cite to make my point. And, and um, I, I believe that instead it would just be enough to quote enough material to make my point and, and leave it at that and, and that sometimes concise is better and, and um, elaborate is, is unnecessary and and um, would cause people to lose interest. The um, Once a proper perspective is reached, to me anyway, that the evidence supporting Christian Israel identities claims that the peoples of Europe descended from the Israelites of the Old Testament, it is astounding and, and there's a wealth of it, and, and I hope we will see some more of that tonight. The Corinthians were Dorian Greeks. The Dorians were a tribe which was said to have invaded Greece by all ancient accounts a short time after the Trojan Wars. I believe some writers say it was two generations after the Trojan Wars. The Greeks who inhabited all of the Peloponnese, which is that, that, that land mass in the Mediterranean south of, of mainland Greece that is almost an island, it's connected by a thin strip of land to the mainland. 
The Greeks who inhabited that before the Dorian invasion, as well as certain areas of the mainland and certain of the other islands, were called everywhere Danans, by the name of Danans, or Danae, and Akahians by Homer. Now, the, the, the plural for the tribe of Dan in Hebrew is Dani, D-A-N-I-Y. Strong transliterates it in his concordance. And the plural of the people of, of the Danans in the Greek literature is Dana, D-A-N-A-I. So it's basically the same word, and we will see that. Modern historians assert that the Dorians came from the north. And they point to the Dorian Tetrapolis. Four cities, Strabo names them in the ninth book of his geography. They are Arrhenius, Boium, Pindus, and Catinium, which lie west of Phocis and north of Delphi on the Greek mainland, north of the Peloponnesus. They point to the Dorian Tetrapolis, which is the name given to these four cities, Tetrapolis, of course, meaning four cities, as evidence of the Dorian origination in the north. These same historians also claim that all Aryans came from the north into the ancient world at one time or another. Yet they are consistently in error because the classical records consistently refute them. The poet Homer is given much credit by Strabo for his knowledge and accuracy in describing the peoples of the oikumene. When I say the oikumene, that's the Greek word for the, the, the dwelling place of the people of their culture and related peoples, the Greeks, the Romans, and related peoples. They called that dwelling place the oikumene. It was the inhabited world. It means living space. Strabo gave Homer much credit, and Strabo's a geographer, and, and a very accurate and, and knowledgeable one. And he called Homer ex arches, meaning from the beginning. Homer's knowledge of the world, which he left us embedded and, and threaded throughout his poetry, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Strabo considered that the beginning of Greek writing and, and, and of the world around them and, and commended Homer for his um, accuracy in detailing the peoples of the Oikumene. Of course, we know that the Iliad and the Odyssey are loaded with myths about gods and, and, and other aspects of the supernatural. However, where Homer talked about the tribes of people and their interactions and their origins, he, he was um, considered to be quite accurate by Strabo. And, and we can see that in, in most cases he was quite accurate in, in depicting the world several centuries before his own time. The poet, Homer, is constantly cited by the geographer. And corroborated because Strabo is actually detailing the world in his own time, which is um, around the time of the birth of Christ because Strabo was probably born around 63 B.C. and died around 25 A.D., I believe.
Homer described all of the people of Greece. And he described the peoples and places known to the Greeks in the period which he wrote about, which was the time of the Trojan War, which was several centuries before his own time. Yet Homer makes no mention of the cities of the Dorian Tetrapolis. Homer even makes no mention of Dorians in Greece or anywhere in the north. The Dorians, who invaded Greece by sea, by all accounts, which is hardly necessary if they came from the north, where they could have walked. The Dorians invaded Greece by sea and pushed the Danans out of the Peloponnese, for the most part. I mean, they, they enslaved some and, and, and left some that they called perioikoi, or the people that dwell in their environment, the, the people that live around them, their neighbors. And the Dorians also later founded some mainland cities. Yet they're only mentioned by Homer as being on the island of Crete in Book 19 of the Odyssey. They're not mentioned in the Iliad at all. They're only mentioned in Book 19 of the Odyssey. And I'm going to read a paragraph from Alexander Pope's Odyssey, Book 19. Alexander Pope was an, an, a British poet who did a translation, a, a very classical translation of the Odyssey in, in poetic form. This is supposed to be a poem. I'm probably going to butcher it reading it. Crete oz the circling waves of fruitful soil. Now, now we know Crete's a pretty small island, right? But, but I, I mean, you know the old adage that the world got smaller as we got more technologically advanced. Well, that's true because the Greeks didn't really see it as a small island. And 90 cities crown the seaborne isle, mixed with her genuine sons' adopted names. In other words, Crete was a land of immigrants. And various tongues avow their various claims. Cadonians, Cadonia is a city on Crete, and they would be natives. Dreadful with the, with the bended U, meaning the bow. And bold Pulaski boast a native's do, meaning the Pulaski are, are natives of Crete, or seen that way by Homer. The Dorians plumed amid the files of war, her foodful glebe with fierce Akahians share. So, so we see the Akahian, Akahians on Crete and Dorians on Crete. Gnosis, her capital of high command, where sceptered Minos with impartial hand. And, and we saw last week the citations concerning Minos, the king of Crete, and we saw how he was related to the Danans and to the Phoenicians by the ancient by the ancient accounts. Divided right each ninth revolving year by Jove or by Zeus in Greek, received in council to confer. So there we have it. That's the only mention of Dorians. In the writings of Homer, and they're not even in Greece or in Europe. They're on the island of Crete. It is my contention that the Dorians actually came from Dor in Palestine. 
a city on the coast of the land of Manasseh, where many ancient Greek so-called artifacts have been found by archaeologists. And I have citations here in my paper to an article in Biblical Archaeology Review, July and August 2001, Biblical Archaeology Review, November and December 2002, an article entitled Gorgon Excavated at Dor, a Gorgon being a figure of Greek mythology. We, we know that Medusa was one of the three Gorgons of Greek mythology. These artifacts show a Greek presence at Dor as early as the 7th century B.C. I'm sorry, in my original paper I wrote as late as the 7th century B.C., and it should have said as early as the 7th century B.C. That was an error. And the context shows that, because I then write, and they're certainly much earlier than the Hellenistic period. Well, the Hellenistic period doesn't start until after the time of Alexander the Great, right? So we see a Greek presence at Dor, or at least the archaeologists, the Jewish archaeologists, are calling this a Greek presence at Dor 400 years before the Hellenistic period. The 7th century B.C. is the time of the last recorded Assyrian activity in Israel, and I say recorded, right? and for which we can see Ezra, chapter 4, verse 2, where he talks about Esar Hadan, who reigned Assyria from 681 B.C. And that is when the last deportations of Israelites happened, of Israelites happened from Israel around 676 B.C. And, and there's an excellent little booklet that explains the, the historical deportations of the Israelites by the Assyrians and that book with Psalm called The Assyrian Invasions and Deportations of Israel by J. Llewellyn Thomas. He uses the Bible as his primary reference and reconciles it with Assyrian inscriptions. And, and um, that book's available. It's a small booklet. It's only a couple of dollars that's available at artisan publishers. For evidence that Israelite priests were indeed present at Thor, we have Biblical Archaeology Review, May, June 2001, page 21, and the article there. I happen to have that very issue in front of me. And on page, on the fourth page of that article, on page 25, we have, and, and this is from a, an Edomite or a Jewish archaeologist named Ephraim Stern, whose work I will be criticizing this evening. And I quote his article, These houses of Yahweh, he's talking about um, temples and, and evidence of Yahweh in archaeological data and, and archaeological findings in ancient Palestine. And there is plenty, believe me. These houses of Yahweh, like the Jerusalem temple, were served for the most part by hereditary priests. And, and we see that, of course, the Levites are the only legitimate hereditary priesthood in ancient Israel. Several seals contain names designated with the title Cohen or priest. One recently published seal refers to Hanan, the son of Hilkiahu, the priest. The ending Yahu is a form of Yahweh. We know that from the Bible. Another seal dating to the last days of the Northern Kingdom or the late 8th century B.C. mentions an Israelite priest active at the temple at Dor, Zechariah. 
or that that would be the equivalent of Zechariah, actually. Yo is the shortened form of Yahweh. And the seal says, Zechariah, the priest of Dor. Similarly, the prophet Amos reports that Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to King Jeroboam of Israel around that time, Amos 7.10. That's just one small outtake of an article which discusses much archaeological evidence of, of priesthood of Yahweh, the Levitical priesthood, in the kingdom period, which supports the biblical accounts. But we see that Israelite priests were indeed at Dor, and we're going to see, and the same, it, it's an article, this Gorgon exca- excavated at Dor article is from the same Jewish archaeologist Ephraim Stern, And we're going to see that he claims that the Greeks were endured this period. Well, which is a ridiculous claim, and we're going to see that also. If the Dorians migrated from Palestine into Greece, rather than from the north, Crete is a logical place to begin settling en route to the west. Further evidence that the Dorians were Israelites is found in Josephus, and I will I will quote Josephus shortly. And it's very clear evidence. In his record of a letter written by a Spartan or Lacedaemonian, as they were also Dorian Greeks, the Spartans were called Lacedaemonians, because Lacedaemon was the region of the Peloponnese in which Sparta was located. And a Dorian king, a Lacedaemonian king, wrote a letter to Jerusalem about 160 B.C. And it's found in Antiquities, Book 12, Chapter 4. And before we commence with that, I would like to look at this Gorgon excavated at Dor article. And I will also quote a little from, from an ancient inscription, which was left behind by the very Assyrian king, Esar Hadan, who was one of the last Assyrian kings to be involved in invasions, military operations in ancient Palestine, as I've cited in the book of Ezra, where it's recorded in Ezra chapter 4. This is from Ephraim Stern, the Jewish archaeologist, in his article, Gorgon Excavated at Dor, just to show the Jewish spin on history. Because there were many, many so-called Greek artifacts and, and Danon or Mycenaean artifacts located in Palestine, discovered in Palestine. And, and this is only a small part of them. And when these are found, these are an embarrassment to the Jews and they actually have to spin history. There was a um, a Greek, I'm sorry, a, a Jewish archaeologist who was quite famous. His name was Cyrus Gordon. And Cyrus Gordon was an archaeologist at um, the University of Pennsylvania for quite some time. He was a professor there. He also taught in, in um, several other schools in the United States. 
Uh, I believe that um, Brandeis University was one of them. And, and I think the other one may have been Columbia or one of the New York schools, I forget. Well, well, he was most famous for his work when he was at the University of Pennsylvania. And Cyrus Gordon actually recognized the links between the Dan and Greeks and the tribe of the Hebrew tribe of Dan. I, I mean, anybody that looks at the classics and it looks at the, the stories which the Greeks themselves admit to us, Anybody that looks at those things has to admit those links. It's impossible not to admit those links. Mycenaean graves, and, and I think I might quote this later in this article, I'm not sure. Mycenaean graves, cra graves called Mycenaean graves because they were people who were buried in the same manner that they were shaft graves and the same type of graves which were dug for people in the ancient Peloponnese, near the ancient city of Mukanahi, or Mycenae, as it's called popularly. The, these graves were found also at Tel Dan, and I have this in, in archaeological journals in scholarly articles. And, and these, um, the, the, the excuses that Cyrus Gordon made were that was that the tribe of Dan was really a Greek tribe that settled in Palestine. That's the excuses that Cyrus Gordon made. They find these archaeological artifacts, and the Jews realize that these artifacts are not Jewish. These artifacts belong to the Aryan people of Greece, and, and, and it's very clear. The correlations are very clear, and, and they can't get around it. So they use these excuses that the Greeks settled in Palestine. However, all of the Greek records state just the opposite, that people are coming from the islands and, and from other parts of the Mediterranean and settling in Greece. That's what all the Greek records state. That's just the opposite of the way the Jews spin these archaeological findings. If we expect to dig in ancient Palestine and find Jews... Well, you're just not going to find them. You might find a lot of things Hebrew, but you're going to find a lot of things that relate the Greeks to the Hebrews because the Greeks descended from the Hebrews. The Greeks descended from the ancient Israelites. Here's Ephraim Stern. It was a fitting climax. We had been excavating at Tel Dor an 80-acre tell or mound on the Mediterranean coast of Israel for 20 exciting years. This was to be our last season. It was near the end of the dig when we found evidence of a Greek temple, the first ever discovered in ancient Palestine or Phoenicia. On this gorgeous site overlooking the sea, we had uncovered layers or strata, to use the archaeological term, from at least eight civilizations spanning 3,000 years, Canaanite, Sickle, one of the sea peoples, Asian tribes that migrated to ancient Israel, Phoenician, Israelite, Assyrian, Persian, Hellenistic, Greek, Roman, and Crusader. Let me talk about the sickle for a second. The Asian tribe of the sickle that migrated to ancient Israel. Well, that's pure conjecture. There's um, no proof that the sickle came from the Aegean. It's believed by the Jews that they came from the Aegean. 
and settled in Palestine. Why is that believed by Jews? Because if it's realized that the sickle were people who originated in ancient Israel and traveled to the Asian and then to Sicily, and the, the Sicily, the island, is named after the sickle. Well, well, then that kind of throws a wrench in the Jewish monkey works, doesn't it? That kind of questions the identity of the Israelites. And, and there are many, many ways in, in, in the classics and in archaeology in which the identity in which the identity of the ancient Israelites, as Jews, can certainly be challenged. As we saw um, last week in my presentation on Trojan Roman Judah, according to the Greek records, the first inhabitants of Sicily, the first modern inhabitants of Sicily, were colonists from the Minoans. And the Minoans were related to the Danans, and to the Phoenicians. It's known in, in historic times that later on, the Dorians settled Sicily. And here we have an archaeologist saying that remnants of the sickle, one of the sea peoples, Asian tribes that migrated to ancient Israel. That sounds like Dorian Greeks to me that originated in Dor, not the Asian, had been at Dor. Well, amongst the earliest Sicilians were the Dorians who founded Syracuse. And according to archaeologists, on a, on a separate note, and, and I noticed from my reading, there were only a couple of pre-Dorian settlements discovered in archaeology at Syracuse. Sicily does not have an, an ancient archaeological record that's anything to really speak of. Most of what we know about it, we, we, we can tell, occurred in historical times. The people of Sicily were Phoenicians who emigrated west, and Dorian Greeks who emigrated west, and Minoans who emigrated west, and met with no opposition. Back to Ephraim Stern. From the combined evidence of both written documents and archaeological remains, it appears that even before the 7th century BC, but mainly during and after it, Greek traders and mercenaries penetrated into Palestine. Well, what we do have, as far as written documents are concerned, is we do have Ezekiel's testimony that Dan and Javan, where he spoke of Tyre, ancient Tyre, the ancient city, the ancient and famous seaport and, and mercantile city, Dan and Javan, and they are the Dan and Greeks and the Ionian Greeks, had been heavily engaged in trade at ancient Tyre. This Greek presence seems to have been a result of more, of more than trade relations alone, as has been recently suggested. Archaeological evidence from the 7th to the 6th centuries B.C. in Phoenicia, 
and also in Israel, gives the impression of a basically Phoenician area with a strong Greek element. There's no basis for that in history. There's no basis for that conclusion in history. There's no proof of that conclusion in history, except that the Jews wanted to be that way so that they worded that way. This is all sheer conjecture that these people because of the nature of the artifacts found that these people must have been Greeks that settled in Israel. There is no evidence whatsoever. There is absolutely not one shred that I've ever seen of historical evidence that there were Greek settlements that were colonies from Greece on the coast of Palestine at any time before the Hellenistic period. I've never seen it in Herodotus, in Homer, in Hesiod, in Thucydides, in the tragic poets, or in any other Greek history, that there were Greek settlements on the coast of Palestine. If the evidence was in the literature, I am sure that Ephraim Stern would have been able to quote some of it, but he didn't quote any of it, because it's not there. Herodotus, Hecatahius, and, and many other ancient Greeks wrote about the coast of Palestine. Homer wrote about the Tyrians. I'm sorry, Homer never mentioned Tyre. Homer wrote about the Sidonians and the Phoenicians, but he never mentioned Tyre. And there's a good reason why Homer never mentioned Tyre. Homer knew his history, and the proof is that he never mentioned Tyre. Because Tyre was rebuilt. Because the Trojan War occurred by all Greek dates around 1200 B.C. And according to Josephus, who had the Chronicles of Tyre in his hands, the ancient Chronicles of Tyre, which had been translated into Greek and they're lost to us, but Josephus did quote from them. And how I would love to have them. Josephus tells us that Tyre was built, meaning it was rebuilt because it was built on top of a much older settlement that had been destroyed. Tyre was built about 240 years before the temple was built, and Josephus dates that. Well, well, that would be no earlier than 1240 B.C. So Homer never mentioned Tyre because Homer, trying to write an accurate account of the world at 1200 B.C., probably knew that Tyre was either a pretty new city or probably thought it wasn't built yet. And that's why Homer did not mention Tyre, which had by Solomon and David's time become the preeminent so-called Phoenician city. And next week I will present my proofs from the Bible, that Tyre was an Israelite city. And the Phoenician people, the great settlers of the Mediterranean, were Israelite people and not Canaanites. The Greek population, getting back to Ephraim Stern, 
did not con constitute a majority of the inhabitants in these areas as they did in the Greek colonies in the Western Mediterranean. Rather, there appears to be, have been an, an oikismos, a settlement of Greeks coexisting more or less peaceably with the greater Phoenician community. For several years, we have known that Greek merchants, sailors, and settlers had been adored. As early as 1983, we discovered in our area C on the eastern side of the mound, a favisa, a pit for storing cult objects that contained clay figurines clearly fashioned in a Greek style. The pottery from the favisa was also Greek. Many other favisae have been found on the Palestinian and Phoenician coast, but this one was the first that contained purely Greek material. The others were with Egyptian, Persian, Greek, and Cypriot elements. The Dorf Avisa was our first indication that there had been a substantial Greek presence here. Could there be a Greek temple nearby? Although the experts differed somewhat as to the date of the Thavisa, the consensus placed it somewhere in the later half of the 5th century BCE, between 450 and 400 BCE, when Dor was a Phoenician city. And that's all I'm going to read from Ephraim Stern from this article. Once we see that the people of Tyre were Israelites, and that will be established next week, because all this goes together, all, all of this history is interwoven, and it can't possibly all be presented in one program. It could hardly be presented in a series of programs. Once we see that all of this is, it, is interwoven, the whole puzzle, it, it's like pieces to a puzzle. You don't really see the picture until the last pieces are, are placed in, and, and then you can see the entire picture. The, the um, book I'm about to read from is Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament. This is a book of basically transliterations and translations of inscriptions. It's from Princeton University Press. It was published in 1969. It's a very, very scholarly work, and it's very studied. It's a selection of ancient inscriptions, which coincide more or less with, with our biblical texts and, and help to clarify many things. There is a whole collection of Assyrian and, 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 and later Persian inscriptions which absolutely fortify everything that we read about the kingdom period of Israel and Judah that we see in our Bible. And, and I'm sorry, Babylonian inscriptions also. There are... Um, a wealth of inscriptions that talk about the Assyrian invasions and the deportations of the Israelites. And, and let's put something in perspective. The Persians thought that they could take Greece in, in um, 490 B.C. And, and they thought they could take Greece with perhaps, um, and I only have the historical records to go by here, right? They thought they could take Greece with... Perhaps 40,000 soldiers. So 40,000 Greek, I'm sorry, Persian soldiers marched on, on Athens. 
and 8,000 Greek soldiers met them. and kicked their asses, according to the Greek account. If it was 20,000 Greek soldiers, that would still be pretty good, huh? Well, that was the Battle of Marathon. So that just, that, that just steals the Persian resolve, resolve and, and Persian's um, geared up for war after their 40,000 soldiers got their butts kicked. And and um, they invaded Greece with what Herodotus calls a million soldiers, and they still lost. If it was a million, and, and, or if not, it doesn't matter. It was a huge invasion. It's very well attested to in history. And the Persians lost again. So the Persians, who, who had been Darius, and, 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 you know, Darius had been at war a long time with the Scythians, he had his defeats and his victories with the Scythians. He had been at war with um, with many other peoples. And, and um, he knew, or at least he thought he knew, what size army he should use to invade a nation. And it, it's um, you don't send 40,000 soldiers in, into, a, um, into a foreign nation with the intent... Of losing them. You send a size, you send a force which you believe can achieve your objective. And you arm it and equip it in, in a manner which you believe it, it, it will achieve that objective. Well, well, when the Assyrians went into Palestine for the first time, they brought 180,000 soldiers against the, the kingdoms of, of um, Syria and, and Israel and Judah. So they knew how many soldiers that they needed to achieve their objective. You, you don't um, you, you don't send 180,000 soldiers when you think you could win the battle with 40. I mean, which shows that, that the Assyrians really took these kingdoms seriously, that these kingdoms did exist as they were described in the Bible with the ability to field a couple of hundred thousand men, as the Bible attests. And, and we see that that must be true from the Assyrian inscriptions because the Assyrians took those nations seriously. They didn't send 40,000 soldiers into Palestine like, like, like Xerxes sent into, um, like Darius, I'm sorry, sent into Greece. And, and he thought he could take it with 40,000, and he was wrong. They couldn't take it with a million because it wasn't in the cards, because God had a different plan. However we see that the Assyrians, from the number of forces that their own records and the biblical records both show us they sent into Palestine, that they took the, the, um, the ancient Israelite kingdom seriously. They didn't think it was going to be any light thing to, to take this kingdom, the house of Hamri, and, and to deport all these people, which is what they did. So, so that's just something to think about, because all these things are recorded in ancient in ancient inscriptions. Well, well, the Assyrians poured into um, ancient Israel, and, and they didn't, you know, even we in Christian identity, we, we take this, well, we cut this to black and white. A lot of Israelites were probably, and, and certainly, and, and, and there is much indication historically, left behind in the land. 
a great number of Israelites were taken away by the Assyrians. Uh, I mean, 22,000, I think it was, in the Assyrian inscriptions. We have record of this from the city of Samaria alone. Of course, we don't have all the inscriptions that the Assyrians left behind. But we know that 22,000 were taken from Samaria. In fact, I think it may have been 24,000. We know that at one other time, over 200,000 Israelites were taken away. And, and that was when, um, when Judah, when 46 fenced cities of Judah were taken away by the Assyrians long before the Babylonian deportations of the people of Jerusalem. Oh, that number, that was one invasion. That doesn't cover them all. That was one invasion by the Assyrian king into Judah. That doesn't cover all of the, the, the people they must have taken from Israel, where we don't, where, where we have the biblical record, but we don't have inscriptions. Because we don't have all of the inscriptions that the Assyrian, we don't have all of the Assyrian records. Surely a lot of them were destroyed. The records that we have were dug out of the ground, but we have them, and they've been translated, and we can read them. This is a treaty of Esar Hadan. Now, now, now the Assyrian invasions of Israel began around. Um, well, of Israel proper around 741 B.C. Uh, I mean, the Assyrians had invaded Syria, and, and they'd gotten as far south as Sidon, which was an Israelite city, in the, ninth, in, in the late 9th century B.C., but they came into Israel proper and, and, against, and, and started collecting tribute from the people of Israel in 741 B.C. And the last... Assyrian operations, as recorded by Ezra 4, which I've already mentioned here, happened around 676 B.C. Well, this is a treaty of Esar Hadan with Baal of Tyre. Now, now, don't ask me why the translator chose not to translate Baal. It may have been for the impact, because the word Baal appears so much in the Bible. But this is not a biblical text. It's not a reference necessarily to a god of Tyre, as we shall see. The word Baal also means Lord in Hebrew. And, and if I were the translator of this text, I'd have translated Baal to Lord, because it clearly refers to the king of Tyre as I read it. And I'm going to read, you know, this this text comes from a broken tablet and pieces of it are missing. But we'll find out exactly the state of Dor when we read this treaty. Treaty of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, eldest son of blank, was Baal, king of Tyre. And, and that would be... Um, a, a title that he's being called by, I believe, which is Lord, the Lord of Tyre. And Esar Hadan, and, and there were a lot of names with Baal in it, right? Esar Hadan, king of Assyria, these cities which, and then it's broken, the royal deputy whom I have appointed over you, the elders of your country, the royal deputy with them, the ships, do not listen to him, do not 
Without the royal deputy, nor must you open a letter which I send you without the presence of the royal deputy. If the royal deputy is absent, wait for him and then open it. Do not, and then it's broken. If a ship of bow or the people or of the people of Tyre, now I would read that as if a ship of the Lord or the people of Tyre, is shipwrecked off the coast of the land of the Philistines or anywhere on the borders of the Assyrian territory, everything that is on the ship belongs to Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. But one must not do any harm to any person on board ship. They should list their names and inform the king of Assyria. These are the ports of trade and the trade roads which Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, granted to his servant Baal to wit. Toward Akko, Dor, in the entire district of the Philistines, and in all the cities within Assyrian territory, on the seacoast and in Byblos, the Lebanon, all the cities of the mountains, all the cities of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, which Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, gave to Baal, to the Lord, to the people of Tyre. In their ships are all those who cross over the towns of Baal, his towns, his manners, his wharves, which too, and, and there's some breaks here in the text. Nobody should harm their ships inland in his district to his man in his manners. And, and then there's a bunch of curses in case the treaty is broken and, and um, invocations of the gods of Akkad in case the treaty is broken. And, and then it says at the very end, tablet of the treaty established with Baal of Tyre, the Lord of Tyre. So we see that door, the city door and the city Akko were handed over by the Assyrians by treaty to the Tyrians. There's no mention of any Greeks in these cities, as the Jewish archaeologist Ephraim Stern would claim, and he's only making the claim because the archaeological artifacts found at Dor which date to this very same period, are considered to be Greek artifacts because they are very much like artifacts which the Greeks left us. The gorgons, the little statuettes, the clay vessels, the pottery. But does that mean that there were Greeks there? Or does that mean that we, we should um, reconsider relationships between the Dorians of Palestine, the people of Dor, and the Dorians of Greece, the people who invaded the Peloponnesus 400 years before this time. Let's look at the history of Dor in the Old Testament. Before we do that, I want to say that Tyre, and this is evident in the Bible and it's evident in history, Tyre was the island city off of the, it, it was just off the coast. It may have been a quarter mile off the coast, if I had to guess, it, it, two, three, four hundred yards, at, at, at the least two hundred yards. Well, Tyre was an island city. It was a strongly fortified island city off of the coast of Palestine, north of Dor, in the land which belonged to Asher. And it had a mainland counterpart, which was also fortified, which was exactly opposite on a mainland. And the Assyrians, when they, um, well, when they came in and conquered Israel and, and, and Judah, 
we know, and the, and the records are famous, and the inscriptions are also extant, that they never took Jerusalem. Well, they also never took Tyre, but the Tyrians had agreed to pay tribute to the Assyrians. Where the people of Jerusalem, they just held out and outlasted the siege, and, and the Assyrians gave up, and, and Yahweh, um, God, caused um, a great loss of their army because he didn't want Jerusalem taken, and, and we see that in the biblical record. And, and Jerusalem did last another um, hundred and some odd years until the Babylonians destroyed it. Well, well the, um, the city of Tyre wasn't taken either. The Tyrians had, had agreed to pay tribute to the Assyrians, and therefore we have this treaty with Esar Haddan and the Tyrians, where he hands over to them Dor and Echo the cities, which were formerly belonging to the tribe of Manasseh. Dor was in the land of Manasseh. And we don't have any Greeks in these cities. We don't have any Greeks in these cities in any of the Greek records. We don't have any Greeks in these cities when, when Herodotus talks about the Persians and the war between the Greeks and the Persians. And that's only 200 years after this period. There were Dorian settlements on the Pontus, on the Black Sea. And Herodotus talked about the Dorians on the Black Sea and how they assisted the Persians in the war, in the war effort against the Greeks. Well, well they were pretty stuck, huh? Because Persia had them surrounded. Persia controlled all that territory. Well, Herodotus never mentioned any Dorians on the coast of Palestine. And Herodotus visited Palestine and he described it. He described it in detail. He described his findings in detail. Herodotus visited Tyre and, and described his findings in detail. He visited it personally and described his visit. If there were Greeks, if there were Greek settlements on the coast of Palestine at this time, well, I'm sure that it would be in some of the historical records. It's not in any of them. And yet, according to Ephraim Stern, and, and the, archaeologist, the, the archaeologists would really lose face. They could spin what they find, but they really can't deny what they find. They could come up with explanations and excuses for what they find, but they can't deny the, the actual hard findings because there are entire teams of people who, who engage in these archaeological digs and the hard evidence that's dug out of the ground is that they draw pictures of it, they take measurements of it, they take pictures of it, they make detailed descriptions of it. Sometimes those descriptions aren't published for 20 years. That's how detailed they are. But, but um, it, it's hard to lie about what you dig out of the ground. It really is. So they don't. They just put their own spin on it. Oh, there must have been Greeks there. Well, there aren't any records of Greeks there in the historical records, and we have plenty of them. We have Ezra and Nehemiah describing how they were made governors of, of Judea and all the land across the river, which means basically all of Palestine. And they don't talk about any Greeks there. Josephus, the historian, makes detailed histories of as much as of, of the history of, of Israel and Judah as he could locate, and he doesn't mention any Greeks in Palestine before the time of Alexander. 
Here's a letter recorded by Josephus about 160 B.C. It's found in Antiquities of the Judeans, Book 12. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, sendeth greeting. We have met with a certain writing, whereby we have discovered that both the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians are of one stock, and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send to us about any of your concern as you please. We will also do the same thing and esteem your concerns as our own. And we'll look upon our concerns as in common with yours. Demodelis, who brings you this letter, will answer, will bring your answer back to us. The letter is four square and the seal is an eagle with a dragon in his claws. That this account of the letter and its contents is factual, is verified by the reply to it recorded by Josephus in Antiquities, Book 13, by Jonathan the High Priest. The reply to this letter was long delayed due to the Maccabean Wars that they had with the Seleucids and problems amongst the Judeans, which are described by Josephus. But since this letter is also documented in our Biblical Apocrypha, in 1 Maccabees, chapter 12, here I will read this, the version found in the Septuagint, the answer to the king of Sparta. Jonathan, the high priest, and the elders of the nation, and the priests, and the other people of the Judeans, unto the Lacedaemonians and their brethren, send greeting. There were letters sent in past times unto Onias the high priest from Darius, which is a title for the, for the king of Sparta. And we see by this letter that that is a title. Who reigned then among you to signify that you are our brethren as the copy here underwritten does specify, at which time Onias entreated the ambassador that was sent honorably and received the letters wherein declaration was made of the league and friendship. Therefore, we also, albeit we need none of these things, for that we have the holy books of Scripture in our hands to comfort us, have nevertheless attempted to send unto you for the renewing of brotherhood and friendship, lest we should become strangers unto you altogether." For there is long time past since you sent unto us. We, therefore, at all times without ceasing, both at our feasts and other convenient days, do remember you in the sacrifices which we offer and in our prayers, as reason is, and as it becomes us to think upon our brethren. And we are right glad of your honor. As for ourselves, we have had great troubles and wars on every side, for as much so as the kings that are round about us have fought against us, meaning primarily the Seleucids, I'm sorry, I sort of lost my place. Howbeit we would not be troublesome unto you nor to others of our confederates and friends in these wars, for we have help from heaven that succors us. So, as we are delivered from our enemies and our enemies are brought underfoot, 
For this cause, we chose Numenius, the son of Antiochus, and Antipater, the son of Jason. They're all Greek names. And sent them unto the Romans to renew the amity that we had with them and the former league. We commanded them also to go unto you and to salute you and deliver you our letters concerning the renewing of our brotherhood. Wherefore, now we shall do well to give us an answer thereto. And this is the copy of the letters which Oniaris sent, King Arius, King of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, the high priest. Greetings, it is found in writing that the Lacedaemonians and the Judeans are brethren, and that they are of the stock of Abraham. Now, therefore, since this has come to our knowledge, ye shall do well to write unto us of your prosperity. We do write back again to you that your cattle and goods are ours, and ours are yours. We do command, therefore, our ambassadors to make report unto you on this wise. That's First Maccabees, chapter 12, verses 6 through 23. And there we have it. The Dorian Greeks and their king in 160 B.C. understood that they were of the stock of Abraham and brethren to the people of Judea. And that must have been in their heritage, in their knowledge, in their writing for them to write that. They weren't just making it up in order to make friends. And we see that the Greek artifacts at Dor were probably there because the Greeks came from Dor. Because the Dorian people of Palestine and the Dorian people of Greece had kinship and, 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 and customs in common. Because that's where the Dorian people of Greece came from. Things that are lost to history. But not if we believe the record in Maccabees and the record in in Josephus, that the people of Dor, the people of the, the Spartans who wrote back to the high priest in Judea, admitted being their kindred and of the seed of Abraham. Now, some people, and I've met with this objection, some people may object to identifying the later Corinthians of Paul's time as Dorians. Because the city was destroyed, and it was later rebuilt by the Romans. And this is true. For in 146 B.C., the Roman consul, Lucius Mummius, Mummius, captured Corinth and raised it by fire, selling the surviving populace into slavery, as was customary for the Romans to do. Giving the account... Strabo tells us that afterwards, the Sicyonians obtained most of the Corinthian country. Well, the Sicyonians are also Dorians. That the Sicyonians, those of the neighboring district, were also Dorians is evident in many places besides Theodorus Siculus, where in his seventh book he writes, It remains for us to speak of Corinth and Sicyon, and of the manner in which the territories of these cities were settled by the Dorians. 
Sikion, a sort of sister city of Corinth, was its equal in the arts, where Strabo says of Corinth, for both here and in Sikion, the arts of painting and modeling, and all such arts of the craftsmen flourished most. So in this manner did the territory of Corinth retain a Dorian composition of its population, but that is not the entire story. Strabo speaks of the rebuilding of Corinth as such was ordered by Caesar, Julius Caesar, which began about 44 B.C. and states that it was restored again because of its favorable position. By the deified Caesar, who colonized it with people that belonged for the most part to the freedmen class. Now, there's a there's um in Judea. There's a mention in the Acts of the synagogue of the Libertines, the synagogue of the freedmen. It was customary in Rome to free to free the children of slaves or the grandchildren or the descendants of slaves that were taken in wars. When Rome conquered your city, everybody that wasn't dead was going to be sold into slavery. If you were smart, you didn't fight with the beast. That's just the way it is. You made a deal and you paid them tribute because Rome would just crush you. And they did it time and again. They were huge. You could not defeat the Roman arms. And many people knew that and, and did make deals so that their cities could remain intact and just paid a tribute to Caesar. And, and you might consider that selling out, but, but it, was, um, it, it was only common sense. Because most of these smaller nations just couldn't fight with Rome. I mean, and the same thing was true of Assyria, and we saw what happened in ancient Palestine. The same thing was true with Persia. We saw what happened to the, to the world under the Persians. They consumed the whole world. But these things were, were these great world empires were, were decreed by God, and, and nobody was going to stop them. Rome had its own prophecies that its empire was and its city was going to last 1,300 years. And, and those prophecies were written um, that they were in the classics, that they were in the classics at the time of Christ. And, and you might find that odd, but it, it's a fact of literature. And, and Rome did last approximately 1,300 years from the, um, from, from the rise of the Republic by the traditional dating on, unto the fall of Rome at the hands of the Vandals and the Goths and the Huns. Strabo, speaking of the rebuilding of Corinth, as such was ordered by Caesar, which began about 44 B.C., states that it was restored again because of its favorable position by the deified Caesar, who colonized it with people that belonged, for the most part, to the freedmen class. And we see that it's the tradition in Rome to allow the children of 
So of slaves taken in that war, when the Romans raised Corinth, to return to it and reinstitute the city. Theodorus Siculus said, Gaius Julius Caesar, when he inspected the site of Corinth, was so moved by compassion and the thirst for fame that he set about restoring it with a great energy. It is therefore just that this man and his high standard of conduct should receive our full approval and that we should, should by our history, accord him enduring praise for his generosity. For whereas his forefathers had harshly used the city, meaning Corinth, he by his clemency made amends for their unrelenting severity, preferring to forgive rather than to punish. Now, the only way that Caesar's deeds could be justly called a restoring, as Strabo calls it, or a clemency or forgiveness, as Strabo calls it, would be that the freedmen which he let repopulate the rebuilt Corinth were descendants of those Corinthians enslaved in its destructions 102 years before time. This is in keeping with Roman custom, which we see at Acts 6-9, where we see Judean freedmen living in the homeland of their ancestors, who must have been taken captive in the Roman conquest of Judea by Pompey some generations earlier. The settling of anyone but Dorians in a rebuilt Corinth could not have been termed clemency or forgiveness, but rather would have been seen as an insult to the Sicyonians, who were Dorians and who had taken that land in the absence of the Corinthians. It would have been an insult to the Lacedaemonians. It would have been an insult to all the rest of the Dorians of the Peloponnese. Yet an examination of Roman custom along with Diodorus' words surely implies that when Strabo attests that the restored Corinthians were for the most part of the freedmen class, he surely meant those freedmen descended from the original Corinthian stock taken captive. The Corinthians were Dorian Greeks. Furthermore, Paul tells us that 1 Corinthians 10.1, I'm sorry, Paul tells the Corinthians in his epistle to them at 1 Corinthians 10.1, Now I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all had passed through the sea. The context of 1 Corinthians 10.1 is the exodus. That's what Paul's talking about. He goes on to talk about things that happened to the Israelites after the Exodus. If Paul tells the Corinthians that all our fathers were under the cloud and all had passed through the sea, and he tells them not to commit fornication as they had committed fornication, which is race mixing, and in one day 23,000 died, and by that he's referring to the events described in Numbers chapter 25. Paul is telling us that the Corinthians, he's telling the Corinthians that they descended from Israel. The only way that these Dorian Greeks could have descended from Israel is if they'd have come from Dor, through Crete, as Homer tells us. And as we've seen, Homer tells us that they were immigrants into Crete, as I quoted from Alexander Pope's translation of Homer's Iliad. If they were immigrants in Crete, 
And Homer doesn't describe them as being anywhere in Greece or in the north. Well, I would guess they must have come from Dor. And that's why we find so-called Greek artifacts in Dor. Because the Dorians came from Dor. But they weren't Greeks yet. The Dorians are Israelites. Let's look at um Joshua eleven two. In Joshua eleven two, we see the first mention of door in the Bible. And to the kings that were on the north of the mountains and of the plain south of Kinneroth, Kinneroth is the Sea of Kinneroth in Galilee, right? And in the valley and in the borders of Dor on the west. And to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and to the Amorite and the Hittite. In Joshua 11, too, they're describing the lands of Canaan that they're going to undertake to conquer. In Joshua 12, 23, the king of Dor on the coast of Dor, the king of the nations of Gilgal, one, the king of Tirzah, one, all the kings, 30 and 1. That's the end of the enumeration of the kings of Canaan, whom the Israelites are planning on conquering. Joshua 17.11, we learn. That Dor had fallen to the lot of the land of Manasseh. That Manasseh was going, the tribe of Manasseh was going to inherit the land which included the city of Dor. And Dor is mentioned in Joshua 17.11. And Manasseh had an Issachar and an Asher, Bethchain and her towns, and Iblaim and her towns, and the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, and the inhabitants of Endor and her towns. One judges, I'm sorry, judges one, Verse 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and her towns, nor Tanakh and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns. Manasseh failed to drive the Canaanites out of a whole bunch of places at that time. And it came to pass that when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but they did not utterly drive them out. And the later biblical record shows that this is true. In 1 Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 29, And by the borders of the children of Manasseh, Bethshean and her towns, Tanakh and her towns, Megiddo and her towns, Dor and her towns, in these dwelt the children of Joseph, the son of Israel. So the people of Manasseh certainly inhabited Dor. Of course, they left some Canaanites in the land whom they put under tribute. But they still nevertheless inhabited the city. 1 Kings chapter 4, and this is 400 years after the children of Manasseh, neglected to drive all the Canaanites out of the door. 400 years later, we see, 
And I'll read from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 1, so we get the context. So King Solomon was king over all Israel. And these were the princes which he had. And it goes on to list a bunch of notable men of King Solomon's time. And we get to verse 11, and we see the son of Abinadab in all the region of Dor, which had Tephath, the daughter of Solomon, to wife. So the chief man of Dor had married one of the daughters of Solomon in his time. And he was surely an Israelite. And we see that the Israelites, the sons of Joseph, the sons of Manasseh, inhabited the city of Dor. And this is, and, and they inhabited it by the time of the Dorian migration. Because the Dorian migration had been occurring at this same time, during the judges' period in Israel. And Paul tells the Dorians, a thousand years later, that their fathers had been through the cloud and through the sea with Moses. Eight hundred years later, the king of Sparta, who is a Dorian Greek by race, even though he's called a Lacedaemonian by geography, he writes to the temple in Jerusalem and claims to be of the seed of Abraham and kinship to Judah. The lens of history seen through Jewish eyes is sure as hell distorted. <laughs> It is one distorted lens. You will never see history through Jewish law, through Jewish eyes. A Jew can't possibly be a historian because every Jew is a liar, as the words of our Redeemer attest. And as John the Apostle says, who is a liar, but they who deny that Jesus is the Christ. The Greeks of Thebes were identified as Phoenicians. Thebes was a notable city in, in Greece, and it was a Phoenician city, there's no doubt. They actually had the hegemony of Greece for a short time in the 4th century. They actually defeated the Spartans to, to gain that hegemony, but it was a Sparta that was very weakened from its long war with the Athenians and the Peloponnesian Wars. The Greeks of Thebes were always identified as Phoenicians. And the Greek gods, Heracles... Dionysius, they were both said to be born in Phoenicia. Cadmus the Phoenician was said to have founded Thebes. He was also said to have been the grandfather of the Greek god Dionysus, as Theodorus Siculus recounts in the fourth book of his history. He was also said to have come from the city of Thebes in Egypt, as Diodorus Siculus recounts in the first book of his history. So we see a connection between these so-called Phoenicians and people in Egypt. The Phoenicians of Thebes were often associated with the Danans. We saw that last week, where Danos, the eponymous ancestor of the Danans, according to the Greeks, was considered to be the brother of Cadmus the Phoenician. Euripides, the tragic poet, 
wrote a play in the 5th century called Phoenician Women. It was a play written about the women of Thebes in Greece, and events said to have taken place even before the Trojan War, and which are legendary in Greek myth. Aeschylus, the tragic poet, wrote on the same topic in a play called Seven Against Thebes. The theme of these plays was the succession battle between the sons of Oedipus for the throne of Thebes, in which Polymeses enlists the help of the Danans against his brother Eteocles. It's a famous story. And, and in Euripides' account, and, and I don't know, I, I don't remember Aeschylus' account, but I've read a, a Euripides' account and, and his play more recently. He describes the Phoenician women as being blonde and fair throughout his play. Just like Virgil described Dido, the queen of Carthage, as being blonde and fair. Now, Virgil, of course, lived 900 years or 800 years after Dido. But by describing her as blonde and fair, Virgil is basically telling us what his ideal Phoenician woman would look like. Just as Euripides describes the people of Thebes as blonde and fair. Theodore Siculus, quoting from the earlier historian Hecatahius of Abdera, and I quoted this last week in, in my exposition on the Trojans, gave a strange account of the Israelite exodus from Egypt, from an Egyptian viewpoint. And he says that the aliens were driven from the country, and the most outstanding and active among them banded together, and, as some say, were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus, but the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea, The colony was headed by a man called Moses, outstanding for both his wisdom and for his courage. Cadmus, who was called the Phoenician throughout classical Greek literature, was the legendary founder of Thebes. Danos, the Egyptian, as he is also usually called, was the legendary leader of the Danans who came from Greece to Greece from Egypt, who could only had been a portion of the Israelite tribe of Dan. Let's read Judges 5.17. Dan was a seagoing tribe right from the beginning. This is the song of Deborah. What when Deborah and her husband Barak led an army against certain of the Canaanites and destroyed them. Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. Here we have two tribes of Israel. In the judges' period, Dan, why did Dan remain in ships? Dan was a seagoing tribe. They weren't fighting the Canaanites like they were expected to be back in Palestine. 
there was no profit in that. Piracy was a lot more profitable. Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. You know, you could open up any Jewish-inspired Bible map of the Old Testament, and you will see Israel separated from the sea by a district of land called Phoenicia. And the Jews want to pretend, and they convince us that the Israelites didn't abide in the sea because that's where the Phoenicians were. In truth, and I will demonstrate this next week, Yahweh willing, those Phoenicians were Israelites. The Jews are lying. The Jewish archaeologists find Greek artifacts on that coast, and they say, oh, the Greeks were here. That They were here. They had settlements here. No, sorry. No record of that in history. Archaeology and history have to agree, at least most of the time. We understand that history sometimes has a political spin. But when we have multiple witnesses, multiple ancient witnesses, multiple contemporary witnesses, well, I would believe the historians rather than the spin of the archaeologists. That's for damn sure. Ezekiel 27:19. Let me dig that out. I'm sorry, usually I like to pull my references before a program, right? Ezekiel 27:19. Ezekiel is actually giving us a lamentation over Tyre. Of course, Tyre was an Israelite city. Yahweh was lamenting it. Do you think Yahweh would lament a Canaanite city? That's crazy. Yahweh not only lamented Tyre, which he prophesied would be destroyed, and it was. He lamented the prince of Tyre. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 27, Ezekiel recounts all the nations that Tyre had done trade with and, and the, the beauty and majesty of the city. And he says, Dan and Javan, going to and fro, occupied thy fairs. Dan being the Danan Greeks. Javan being the Ionian Greeks. You know, that J is not a J because we don't have a J before the 16th century in English. It's actually a Y, Yavan. It appears in Genesis chapter 10, Yavan is a descendant of Japheth, or Yapheth. And in, in Greek mythology, and, and, and Yapetis is not a Greek word. It has no Greek etymology. In the play by Aeschylus, Prometheus Bound, he has an ancestor named Yapetis. That is not a coincidence. Everywhere in Persian inscriptions where the Ionian Greeks are mentioned, we have Yavana. Of course, the learned Sir George Rawlinson, when he translated the text of the Behistun rock and encountered the Persian word Yavana, which is Javan, which is Yavan. 
He wrote Ionian Greeks because he knew what the Persians were talking about. Dan and Javan, for that to make sense, that has to be the Dan and Greeks and the Ionian Greeks. Cadmus called the Phoenician throughout classical literature. I know I read this once before. I have to read it again. It's only two sentences. Was the legendary founder of Thebes. Danos, the Egyptian, as he is also usually called, was the legendary leader of the Danans who came from Greece into Egypt, who, I'm sorry, who came to Greece from Egypt, who could only have been a portion of the Israelite tribe of Dan. This event, the event of the migration of the Danans from Egypt to Greece, was parodied in later classical literature as the flight of the daughters of Danos from the sons of Ahiguptus, or Egypt. An example of this parody is the play by Aeschylus called Suppliant Maidens. The point is to show that the Danans came to Greece directly from Egypt, and so they were never under the cloud in the Exodus, having left, it, having left Egypt in a different manner. But the Dorians were under the cloud. The Romans descended from the Trojans, and there is very much historical citations to demonstrate that all the ancient historians accepted that. And neither could their fathers have been under the cloud, because Darda, the son of Mahol, the tribe of Judah Zara, by all accounts must have lived long before the Exodus, and Darda was the legendary founder of Troy, and Homer consistently referred to the Trojans as Dardans. Calcol, Darda's kinsman, also mentioned in 1 Kings 4.31, must be the Calchas of Greek legend who, according to the Greeks, as mentioned by Herodotus and Strabo and others, founded Pamphylia. The names of these Greek legends being found in the Bible belonging to Israelites compared to Solomon in wisdom, and therefore they must have been great men, are surely beyond coincidence. Zara went to Egypt without his famous sons, who were not mentioned elsewhere in the biblical accounts, and Troy, and as we see in Genesis 46, 12, and Troy was so called in Hittite records, which existed two centuries before the Exodus. So then, Zara, Judah, Trojans, ancestors of the Romans, must have parted from the Israelites before that time, and possibly even before Jacob went to Egypt, if they were already born, and they very well may have been. Later Phoenician colonists in the Mediterranean were the Israelites of the northern tribes who sailed from Tyre primarily, and from Sudan. These settled not in Greece, nor in Italy. They settled in Cyprus, Calicia, Miletus, Carthage, Iberia, and points further west. They were mining tin in Britain. They settled in Ireland. Among the other Greek tribes, the Pelasgians were in Greece before the Danans, by all accounts. 
They're a, a tribe called the Aeolians, but they're only a division of the Danans. And the Ionian Greeks are the descendants of Japheth. There were no other candidate tribes but the Dorians in Italy or Greece who could have been under the cloud, as Paul states, of the Corinthians' ancestors at 1 Corinthians 10.1. In other words, he couldn't have been speaking to Trojans or, or to Danans or to Japhethites. Paul must have been addressing Dorian Greeks. And the historic record attests to that. One outstanding feature of Paul's records to the Corinthians, as his frequent admonishments to them, are his frequent admonishments to them not to commit fornication, which is pornaya, illicit sex, which includes, but is not limited to, prostitution and race mixing. These, um, that these, Admonishments are found in 1 Corinthians chapters 5, 6, 7, 10, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Corinthians of old were famous for their fornication. They were so famous for their fornication <laughs> that a verb was coined from their name. Corinthiadzomahi meant to practice fornication. And Aristophanes, the poet, and other Greek writers used that verb in that manner. So the name Corinth was equivalent with fornication, or synonymous, I should say. The city was also famous for its temple of Aphrodite and the courtesans, which it had. They were slaves who worked as temple prostitutes, which are called pornahi. And they were owned by the temple. So we see that once we understand the history of the people in the epistles who Paul is writing to, those epistles become a hell of a lot clearer. Next week, I'll present classical records or, or biblical records. Uh, I forget the title of my own paper, but imagine that. Biblical records and the identification of the Phoenicians or something like that. It, it's a paper I wrote long ago presenting all of the evidence that the people known famously as Phoenicians, they were also the children of Israel. They just weren't Dorians. They were the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were the children of Israel of the northern tribes. Zebulun and Naphtali, and primarily Asher, and some others. Thank you for listening tonight. Praise Yahweh. Good night.